Hey guys, I'm uh, ex extremely excited today. I, it was one of the rare times where I have multiple guests joining me. I think it's only the second time. Usually it's one-on-one, -on -one, but now it's one-on-two. We've got uh, Susan. Now, um, tell me how to, is it Meg Salmon? Is that the right way to pronounce it? Meg Salmon, yes. Meg Salmon and Ivory Ross. Ivy Ross, let me just read you their bios, both incredibly accomplished uh, individuals. So Susan is the founder and director of the International Arts and Mind Lab Center for Applied Neuroesthetics. I love that term. At Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And you're also the co-director of the New Arts Blueprint. Uh, we can talk about other things that you do. Ivy Ross is the vice president of design for hardware products at Google, where she leads a team that has won more than 225 design awards. She is a national endowment for the arts grant recipient and was ninth on Fast Company's list of the 100 most creative people in business in 2019. My goodness, some accomplished people. So here is the phenomenal book. By the way, get out, get out there and get this book, guys, Your Mind on Art. Just to show you how, how excited you should be about your book, my wife almost never reads any nonfiction. <laughs> she only reads fiction. I'm trying to... I'm trying to become a better fiction writer and I'm trying to get her to become a better nonfiction writer. And she saw this book. She goes, I think I might read that book. So that's about the highest endorsement that you can receive. So wow. congratulations. Thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad, you know, we did that to her. We'll have to let her know, let us know what she likes. Okay. She likes. Wonderful. Well, right now, actually, so I was just telling you earlier that I just received, sorry to plug my own book. I just received the physical copy of my own book, The Sad Truth About Happiness. And we went to a cafe earlier today where she's reading it for the first time ever. I'm very, very protective over my words. No one can read it. And so, you know, as she's sitting next to me reading it, the only thing I could keep thinking about is, what is she thinking? Is she enjoying it? Is she enjoying it? But I'm sure she will enjoy your book. Uh, so maybe we could start just describing a bit your, your background, neuroesthetics, VP of design. A lot of people might not know what that might mean. Any, any of you can take that first question first. So maybe I'll start and, and then um, hand it over to Ivy. Well, thanks for having us, first of all. It's really a pleasure to be here. And um, we're excited to read your book. So, so let us know. Um, so um, my background is like, I think many people sort of, uh, a journey. Um, I started um, as a kid just being really interested in the role of the arts because I have a twin sister who had a really serious um, physical accident when, when we were 12 years old. And uh, she almost lost her leg and really couldn't talk about it because she was so traumatized. And um, she started to draw. And for me, um, it's when I really understood that there were many more ways to communicate than talking and that, well, talking is wonderful, um, that the way we express ourselves is through so many different mediums. And that really became kind of embedded in me very early. Um, and sort of fast forward, I started a couple companies, one called Curiosity Kits, which were um, arts integrated um, projects for kids four to 14 in arts, sciences and world cultures. And I started another company that was an early learning um, technology company, um, teaching skills from interest to mastery through character and storytelling. And then I ended up at Hopkins in 2000 and 2002, 2003, um, developing something first called the Neuroeducation Initiative using the arts for learning, and then was invited um, through a gift at the School of Medicine to think about how to build something around arts for health and well-being. And that's how the Arts and Mind Lab was created. 
and ultimately the neuro arts blueprint to really build this field of neuroaesthetics. Um, and um, and then Ivy and I met and um, through the lab, I invited Ivy to be what we call a luminary scholar. Um, so maybe I'll turn it over to her. Thank you. Go ahead, take yeah, it away, Ivy. Susan reached out to me on LinkedIn, but I had been a uh, artist, designer. I've um, run design departments across many different uh, disciplines and many different companies from Calvin Klein to Mattel Toys and now technology and have invented many ways of working with uh, bringing out the best in people's innovation and creativity. But always interested in not just what we make, but how we make it. And so when Susan reached out, she said, I've been following your career for 25 years. And I said, that's called stalking. And then she said, okay, I guess so. And she said, no, the, I've watched the way you operate. And um, we now, science is proving what it appears you've known intuitively that the arts, and when we say the word arts, it's everything from singing, dancing, visual arts, theater, architecture, you know, changes your brain and your body. And so, and I, at first I, I said, yes, you're right. I know that. And then I realized, oh my God, but if science is proving it now, the world needs to understand this because just like, I don't think we all exercised 30 minutes a day until science finally got, you know, drilled it into our heads that we had to do this. So I said, this is remarkable. And then we had a salon in my house between artists and neuroscientists that was this incredible conversation that lasted four hours, five hours. By the end of it, Susan looked at me and said, I've always wanted to write a book about this. Do you want to do it with me? And I said, absolutely. This is the book I've been waiting for. Well, you know, what I love about both your stories, and I think, I mean, the first thing that that caught my attention about this book is just how it looks. And then the feel, there's a tactile, I don't know if this was yes, intended. intended. Oh, it's all oh, intentional. It's all no, no but is, is that are you being facetious or are you being no, serious? It's true. Okay. Because I mean I'm touching and I, I don't know whether I should read it or make love to it or play very <laughs> white music to it, but it definitely feels different than other books. So so kudos to that. But I think the other thing that really excited me to, to, to speak to you guys is that you really both seem to have this interdisciplinary bent. So if I can speak a moment uh, about my own career. And, and actually, I discussed this in my forthcoming book when I talk about intellectual variety seeking. Uh, you know, I've published in radically different disciplines, which is the perfectly incorrect thing to do in academia. You're supposed to be a hyper-specialist. You publish in one thing. You dig deeper. You do an endless litany of studies that are plus epsilon. Whereas, you know, I've published in politics and in medicine and in evolutionary theory and in marketing. I, I don't care where I publish. If there's a problem that interests me and I think... I can contribute to it in some small way, then let's have fun and let's try to, you know, to, to do something creative. And so the fact that as a designer, Ivy, you, you know, you're marrying all, you know, engineering with some marketing, with some design principles, the fact that, you know, you're linking neuroscientists with artists, the fact that in your case, uh, Susan, you're doing neuro aesthetics. When you think of, you know, brain imaging, you're thinking as a cold, sterile thing to now link that to the arts. It's beautiful, which then, just one more thing, and I'll turn the floor to you. I was looking in your in your book to see if you mentioned the word consilience, because consilience is uh, is kind of my uh, my sacred word. Because I, I I've always argued that you can't really study 
human behavior without the consilience of evolutionary theory. And of course, E.O. Wilson is the guy who reintroduced that term. So it, have you always been, both of you folks that are driven by trying to build these bridges across domains of, of, of imp import? Yeah, well, first I'll say, you know, I think the world is full of the tension of opposites. So I agree with you. I love neuro and aesthetics, those two things put together. And to me, it's right because it has that tension. Um, but I always look to, in fact, hire people that haven't been just in one swim lane, because I think this, and I know Susan and I, we both believe that the future is um, this diversity of ways to look at the world because I think it's the only thing that is going to solve our problems of the future is to have uh, this different ways of looking at things. Beautiful. Yeah. Susan, you want to add anything? Just that, you know, I think curiosity is such a huge driver here. And, you know, Ivy and I both are really curious by nature. We have sort of that um, beginner's mind and that takes you wherever you lead, right? Where your energy goes up, you go towards it. And the more messy it is, the better it is. And, and I think sadly, um, the society's structures are not allowing yet for these highly immersive interactive, interdisciplinary, uh, trans-institutional um, models, where which is really where the action is. And you know, in reading the book that we had an opportunity to meet with E.O. Wilson. And, um, you know, he really believes that it's not just that the arts are interesting or um, even good for us, it's that we are fundamentally hardwired for the arts and aesthetic experiences. So there, it's the mother load. And I think understanding that from a neurobiological perspective and from a physiological, psychological perspective is we're just at the beginning, even though we know so much, there's so much more that's going to come, that's going to come forward. That's going to even begin to help us solve some of these bigger problems by understanding the neurobiology, but also the public health implications, the psychology, um, you know, all of that. Um, I just got off the phone with um, a, a big healthcare provider. Um, who is trying to understand how they pay for the arts because they're realizing that the traditional Western medicine is not doing it. And in simple things like adherence to medication or thinking about quality of life, such a great term. And so I think we're going to start seeing systems shift to bring these, you know, what we, we call the arts, which is such a under uh, overused, under misunderstood term. Well, you know, in my so I'm I'm at uh, I'm a professor at a university, and you know we have a lot of sort of avant-garde uh, programs at my school. You know, sustainability and all this kind of stuff. One one such initiative is to try to introduce art in the back stairway. You know, stairways where you it's all very gray and uh, gloomy. And so what, what they've decided to do is put these, I mean, I don't know how they exactly, these huge pieces, but that provide color as, you know, first, first it promotes that you take the stairs, especially if it's a big building, 15, 17 floors, it's certainly good for your heart. But the recognition that by adding an aesthetic element, even as simple as just a few paintings, so it's not drab. Uh, I think is certainly in line with what you guys are talking about, which leads me then to the next question. And a lot of restorative environments like hospitals, 
hospitals don't seem to recognize that it's not a good idea to be you know, recuperating in a terribly sterile environment. Why haven't they incorporated some of your ideas of an, of artifying the place? What, why has that been so difficult for most hospital settings to accept? Is it that they've got limited dollars? And so, you know, I don't have time to spend it on art. I'd like to spend it to buy the next fMRI machine. Well, Ivy talks about this in a really eloquent way, and we should come back to to this, is that, you know, we have been optimizing for productivity for such a long time, thinking that that would make us happy, that would be the way to go. And in fact, what we're finding is that's not true. And you can take that to a systems level. So, you know, healthcare operates on a very small margin, you know, being at Hopkins, it's a very small margin. And I think because we haven't really understood the benefits of the arts, we've positioned them societally as a luxury, as a nice to have, as something that, you know, maybe you do if you have time, but mostly it's a waste of time or that space is about utility. It's about function, not about feeling. So as we are starting to understand this neurobiology and the complex physiological network of really interconnected systems like immune and endocrine, you know, circulatory systems, higher order brain functions in an enriched environment, I think the more that knowledge becomes mainstream and then um, goes from theory to practice, we're going to see these huge shifts in the way buildings are built, not just for healthcare, but for education, the way neighborhoods are designed to lower, you know, street violence and gun violence, to think about the way senior centers are organized to help people feel more connected to each other. But this, this field is only 20 plus years old, where we're really able to bring proof forward in a tangible way and begin to have these conversations. So I think it's it's happening and Ivy can give you some great yeah. examples. Yeah, no, it was definitely about efficiency. I absolutely agree. And you know, even the stainless steel equipment, you know, every it was almost made to look effective, you know, um, designed to be effective. And anything other than that would take away from that. And now the research is showing that. You need nature in these places. You need, you know, Susan and I, um, we've been giving talks to hospitals and they're putting, they're creating recharge rooms, even not only for patients, but for their staff. When now they understand that it doesn't take a lot to bring some of this beauty and aesthetics and sensorial things into the hospital. So I think we're at the beginning of a big revolution um, because we have found out that optimizing for productivity is not the thing that makes us happy. And it's both and, we need both. We need the productivity and we need the sensorial aspect and beauty of life. Um, you know, in, in tribal times, and there's still many tribes today, they didn't even have a word for art because it was the way they lived. It was culture, singing, dancing, painting, storytelling. and somehow we abandoned that. And that's what E.O. Wilson was explaining. We were designed for this. We were wired for it. And so we've been depleted of it. Um, and now it's time to bring it back. You know, uh, as you're speaking, I, I can see so many links between some of the stuff that you talk about in your book and some of the stuff that I've been writing about for many years. So one of the things that I try to do is demonstrate the applicability of evolutionary thinking across countless domains. Now, I apply it largely in studying consumer behavior and economic decision-making, but I demonstrate it across a bewildering number of fields. So for example, and I'm sure you probably know this field, 
evolutionary architecture or biophilic architecture, which is certainly in, in line with E.O. Wilson's biophilia hypothesis. Uh, I, I So in this book right here, this, this one right here, Evolutionary Psychology and the Business Sciences, there's a chapter on evolutionary atmospherics. So how do you design commercial spaces, whether it be hotel lobbies or whether it be retail stores or interior spaces that that tickle our biophilic instincts, whether it be you, you know, a living wall or a window. I, I don't know if you know the, the classic study. I think it was published either in Nature or Science in 1984 by Ulrich. Does that ring a bell at all? You, no, you know this. Yeah. Okay. So one of you said yes, one of you said no. So I'll just mention it quickly. It's basically you take the exact same group of patients that have had the same, you know, uh, surgical procedure. So you're controlling for everything. Half of them are placed in a room that has a window to the world. Half of them oh, are yes. placed in a room that doesn't have a window. So, so never mind about putting, you know, fancy art. We're not talking about putting a Klimt painting. Just having exposure to nature or not, controlling for everything else, just that manipulation ended having a profound downstream effect for the ones who who had the window to the world. So, so again, to me, it seems like it's these are such no-brainer things, and yet. You, you know, you have to go out and write a book like such as this one to convince people exactly for what you said. It seems as though it's a luxury thing to appreciate art. It's not a fundamental property of being human, right? Right. Well, I think once we made the word art and made it commercial, then judgment comes in, right? I am a good artist. I'm not a good artist. I can't, I shouldn't do this because it's not the way I'm going to make my money, my profession. Whereas, you know, that's the way I think when we grew up, for some people, they were saw it that way. It's a waste of time if I'm not, it's not going to be my profession. And, you know, often we were artists and creator, creative when we were little. And then as Sir Ken Robinson said, you know, nursery school, who's an artist? Everyone's hand goes up by third grade. No one's hand is up because people have said, that's not the way you draw a tree. That's not the way you make this and, and really shut it all down. And then it became more of a commercial thing. And, um, you know, art is critical, it's self-expression. So no matter the singing, dancing, theater, it's all about self-expression. And I think we've been holding that back and we have little micro traumas every day as well as big traumas and they just keep getting suppressed and suppressed. And through the arts is one way to get that out. And it's really, it's our human birthright and to share that or not just to do it for yourself right. has a profound change on your physiology. And, you know, they're finding out, you talk about nature is the most neuroesthetic place there is because it has every sense, temperature, sound, shape, color, vision, everything. It touches everything. And we, we uh, actually, it was E.O. Wilson that pointed out to Susan and I that for 98.9% of our lives, We've lived in nature. It's only been like 0.1 or 2% since humans are around that we've not been living in nature. You know, this we live in this experiment called buildings. And you could say that's failed too, because we're craving, it's our nature to be in nature. So no wonder you go out there and in 15 minutes, your is it your cortisol, Susan? I mean, all these things go down, your blood pressure. I mean, it changes your entire physiology because you're back home. The the space just to stay with the space um, conversation for a minute, you know, when you think about 
um, Marion Diamond's work in the 60s. You know, she really was the one that was able to show structural changes in the brain based on enriched environments. And that was, you know, this novelty and surprise element um, as opposed to um, more impoverished spaces. And yet at the same time, you know, she, well, as a, as a female neuroscientist, she was really denigrated and uh, for a very long time until other scientists started to show these structural changes really understand neuroplasticity and how you know neural connections happen through these highly salient enriched environments which turn out to be you know space environments but also arts experiences that really have these meaningful impressions on us and so you know one of the things that we wanted to look at in the book is what are some of those universal principles that help you create the emotional states in spaces? And you know, not everybody is saying, oh, I wanna feel calm in a space. It may be that you wanna pay more attention or you wanna sleep better, or you, know, you wanna have more of a playful environment. So how do you really start to think about what are those universal elements? You know, culture trumps so many things. So you always have to tie in culture, but can you think about things like curved spaces? Can you think about light sources or light hue? Can you think about color and in different ways, text, texture, temperature, all of the things that we can manage in these interior human built environments. And so in the fall, Ivy and I are hosting um, an event um, through Hopkins at um, in Washington, D.C. called Intentional Spaces Summit, where we're bringing researchers and designers, interior designers, exterior designers, architects, landscape people with a lot of different um, fields to really talk about how do you create a framework to bring this interdisciplinary group together. And, you know, we because we have monetized a lot of this this work and we've thought about it as, you know, how you design space is so um, competitive. Oftentimes these folks haven't come together and now they're wanting to come together because they think there's a lot of learning they can have from each other. And that's the right environment to really make real change in a, in a field. Yeah, well, you, you, you mentioned two words, which are a perfect segue to my next question. You mentioned universal principles and then you talked about culture. Uh, it's a it's a perfect segue and you'll see in a second why because so in evolutionary theory uh, we can study both both human universals things that are exactly the same across all people but also we could explain cross-cultural differences from an evolutionary perspective so for example why is it that some cultures have more spicy food than other cultures it turns out to be itself due to a biological reason hotter climates have more foodborne pathogens and therefore you use more spices as an antimicrobial property. So we can both explain culture and cross-cultural similarities using an evolutionary lens. So then if we apply that framework to art appreciation or aesthetic appreciation, so we can argue one of two ways. One, so for example, there's something called prospect refuge theory, which basically says that there are particular landscapes. So if I show people 10 different landscapes, there'll be one that is universally preferred, even though I may not come from that kind of uh, topography, precisely because it offers me the greatest amount of prospect I can hide and the most amount of, re so refuge while, so not be seen while being able to see out. And so you can use those principles, let's say to design a cafe. You don't want a cafe to look like a like a prison cafeteria. You want it to have little nooks and crannies and so on, right? So from your writing this book, are there 
inviolable universal aesthetic principles that irrespective of who you are you'll agree that this painting is more beautiful than this painting for reasons xyz now of course there are subjective preferences i like cubism you don't i like art deco you don't so how do we kind of navigate through the universal aesthetic preferences versus the individual specific preferences so you know beauty is in the eye of the beholder when it comes to um artistic creative expression and i think there's some really good reasons why that is true um you know the work of samir zeki started to show that um in the late 90s and anjan chatterjee uh university of pennsylvania has followed up on that um and basically as you said we all have a similar proximity around um what we think is a is a is a universal landscape and and that's an evolutionary um imperative for survival we also have a very similar um precept when it comes to faces so we know when someone looks scared or sad or happy and you know there there are you know hundreds of very small shifts that we all universally agree in facial um uh, emotional uh, uh information but when it comes to creative expression, that's where culture trumps universal physiological things. And color is a great example of that. You know, in the United States, we think of red that basically means stop. And in Asian cultures in China, red means luck, right? So, so I think allowing for those kinds of cultural differences, and at the same time, especially when it comes to design, um, you know, Ivy does beautiful design work at Google. She's created um, amazing things that look like rocks, that they're rounded, they're textural. They don't stand out in an environment. They, they blend into an environment. So those are universal principles that she's bringing into a space. And she may be offering them in a range of colors based on, you know, thinking about a range of human experience and things, you know, age, gender, all of the different things that you might think about when you're designing product, for example. So I think you can blend them together, um, but we also don't allow for individual preference. Um, and Ivy, tell him about a space for being and about the story of the woman. I, I love this story. It illustrates what you're talking about. Yeah. So first of all, I want to say my team, I, I'm lucky to the, um, the orchestra conductor over an amazing team. So my team, we design, we agree on the design principles, but my team has done this ama amazing products. But it was very intentional because we, we do think that nature uh, is the best designer in some cases. So really look toward it to inspire us. But what Susan's talking about is in 2019, the Milan Design Fair, um, Google as well as Susan's lab, um, my Google design team, we created this exhibition called A Space for Being. And it was really the first time we brought the science of, of neuroaesthetics to the public. Um, and what happened is when you arrived, we, had, we worked with an architect, Suchi Reddy, who created three different living room settings, um, the same kinds of furniture, you know, couch, dining room table, et cetera, but each of them was very different aesthetically, different uh, textures, colors, even different scents, different music, different artwork. And when each participant came in, there was only 10 people allowed at a time. Um, for, they got a band that they wore that Susan's Lab and Google had worked out an algorithm that was uh, using sensors, taking in 
the physiology of each person. And there was an algorithm that was made to determine in which room the person's physiology, not their mind, and that's what we'll get to in a minute, uh, felt the most at ease or the most at home or the least stressed. So participants would spend five minutes in each room wearing this band, no talking, no photograph. And we invited them, touch the art, you know, stroke the couch, smell the smells, just, it was called a space for being, just be, don't do anything, just be in that aesthetic environment. And then they did this for three different rooms. At the end, they took off the band, they handed it to a band tender, not a bartender, who uh, got their data. And then of course, because we're Google, deleted it. But before which we showed, we, were, we would first ask the participant, which room did you like best? And so some would say, oh, room number two, I love the color on the walls, or room number three, it reminded me of so-and-so's house. And then we would show them in which room their body was most comfortable, not their cognitive mind. And in 58% of the time, it, there was a difference, which we had hoped because it would have been a disaster if it was always the same. And they were like, how could that be? And we we're like, because your body is feeling all the time. Your body has these sensory systems. You know, we walk around um, being in our cognitive mind because it's our most recent development, thinking that that is, that's all there is. And I think Jill Bolte-Taylor has this great saying that, you know, we think we're thinking beings that feel, but we're really feeling beings that have learned how to think. And I think we forget that. And so, um, and Susan could talk about how many sensor sensors there are in every fingertip and in every way, but you're taking in information all the time. And 95% of that doesn't even get to your brain, but your body feels it. And so, you know, it's interesting because afterwards the journalists were saying, oh, you know, is Google going to make a band that tells people how they feel? And we're like, no, I don't want to walk around in a world like that. This was done to show you, first of all, that we are feeling all the time. And that, you know, so the first thing is be aware of that. We're embodied beings. And that what we think may not always be how we're feeling and what our body's taking in. And that we have agency over our surroundings. You know, the things, because at the end, we gave people a printout of what was in that particular room where their body felt the most at ease or least stress, you know, certain sense, certain, and there was no also, you know, you gotta love humans. They were like, well, what's the right room? And there is no right room to your point earlier. It's like, it's what is right for you. And the story Susan's talking about, the last thing I'll say on this is there was a journalist from South America who grew up without a lot of money um, and she was saying to us after she kind of came through the experience that this was amazing because, um, and by the way, there were three rooms. One was a little more primitive. One was a little more fun. One was a little more sophisticated. Um, but she said, well, they were all beautiful. And at first I went through all of them. My mind was saying, I don't deserve these rooms. They're too beautiful for me. I can't relate to any of them. And then when we showed her the data, it was the playful room that her body absolutely loved. And she started to cry. And we said, what is going on? She said, oh my God, I realize we grew up poor and the time I was happiest is when I was playing. Oh and my so, God. Yeah, go ahead, yeah. finish your point because so, I'm going to show you so, something in my, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. So that clearly, she that was an example of how that memory was in her body and, and that she, for the first time, saw that her body acknowledged that by being, you know, 
in terms of how it reacted to being in a room that was playful versus these other two rooms. So it was a, it was, it was great. And, you know, people wrote us from all over, you know, first of all, from the, the, the professions of interior design and design art, thank you for, you know, validating what we do matters. But more importantly, what made us happy is for people to get in touch with this realization that we are feeling beings that have learned to think not thinking beings that feel once in a while when and agency i think your agency point is just underscored right because we don't have we can make very small shifts in the aperture with big impact and if we know we're not embodied or if we feel understand how we are embodied beautiful i two two quick comments to what ivy was saying so the, the reason why i was flipping through my latest book chapter five i just i can't remember if it was chapter five or chapter six the entire chapter is titled, I mean, the title of the chapter is Life as a Playground. And what mm -hmm. I basically argue in that chapter is that, you know, one of the ways that you can incre increase greatly your chances of happiness if you truly have a playful mindset. And I take specific examples of very serious, austere pursuits, you know, science, right? You would think that every scientist should be looking up into the sky, pontificating seriously, never smiling. Whereas, you know, I can, you know, I, I gave a talk earlier this year at Stanford and at USC, I've got a long academic CV, but I can act like a complete buffoon and joke around and be playful and not take myself seriously. Many of my academic colleagues will tell me, you know, they don't feel comfortable doing that because it would threaten their professorial aura. And to me, that sounds so silly because I'm a multifaceted creature. I can sit with you two ladies and have a very serious conversation. And then five minutes later, I can act like a total clown with my young children because we're multifaceted. So I love that play story because it perfectly, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, well, no, I can say, well, you know, the opposite of play, people think the opposite of play is work and it's not, it's depression. Right. And, and play is doing something different than you do every day, but without a preconceived outcome. And that is the key because we are so driven right now in society by everything has a result or an outcome. Right. And so every everything we do, every transaction we make always has that in mind. But the beautiful thing about play and why it's so critical, as you say, is that that's where the joy comes when you don't have an, a preconceived expectation and you're just playing and you're discovering and you don't care because there is no end expectation. You're just playing. Yeah, and the beautiful. irony of that, the irony of that is that you actually create more and you're more innovative and you're more productive. You know, we have, um, and I and I are really, really fun. <laughs> we, we don't have to have a serious conversation. Um, <laughs> we, 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 we mostly are just pretty fun. Um, but we have something called the aesthetic mindset in the book that I think is worth sharing. And it's four attributes. The first is curiosity. It's being interested in the beginner's mind. The second is play, playful exploration that Ivy's describing. The third is being aware of your sensory surroundings. What's it smell like? What's the temperature? How's it feel? Like knowing, embodying your senses. And the last is how do you engage as a maker and or a beholder. And like, even right now, we're, we're in an improv, right? We're having a conversation. I don't know what you're going to say. Ivy doesn't know what you're going to say. I know what Ivy's going to say <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> but not always. And, you know, and then we're beholding, right? We're always in those different multifaceted ways, yet we don't see that as art. 
like the art of living, literally. And I think that when we start to embrace those attributes of an aesthetic mindset, we are happier, we are healthier, we are more productive, you know, and we also are more in community. And that's what I think we're all longing for is that sense of community. Well, I mean, sorry, go ahead, ahead, Ivy. Well, I was going to say, you brought up earlier about the scientist and the seriousness. What Susan and I realized after working together um, is the similarity both the creator and the scientist, the best ones are always asking questions, yes. you know, the why or the, and that is that curious, playful mind. So there's more similarities between these groups than one thinks. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to say that, you know, conversations is an art form, right? As you said about the op- improvisational nature. So uh, one of the reasons I started the channel way, I mean, now everybody and their mother has a podcast, but I was one of the, Oh, geez, one of the original, I mean, certainly as a professor, probably perhaps the first one, this is, I've been doing this since 2014, I think. And the only reason I started it was I thought, so if I, I can get to just invite all sorts of cool people and they'll say yes and have a conversation with me. And if we do a good job, thousands of people are going to watch it and then say nice things that they really enjoyed it. Sign me up now. Okay, it's nice if you make a little bit of extra money, but the money never, I mean, it took me a few years before I even thought about monetizing my channel because I was doing it for strictly pure reasons. I just want to, you know, I want to invite super cool people in all sorts of disciplines to have a conversation with me. So, and that is a form of play, isn't it? Absolutely. Totally. totally. I just wanted to say one other thing that uh, Ivy mentioned at the start of her last one. You said nature is the best designer. I loved you saying that because in in this book, in the Consuming Instinct, I have a a section titled uh, the the greatest uh, product designer of all time or something something to that effect. And of course, you're gonna know the answer. That's nature. But when I walk into my say MBA class and I tell people. Uh, can you name who's the greatest designer of all time? So now here comes, uh, you know, Thomas Edison. Here comes uh, uh, Steve Jobs. Here comes Elon Musk. And then I say nature. And that's when I introduce the concept of biomimicry. So I'm, I'm guessing based on how you answered, you're both very familiar with that discipline, correct? Yep, mm-hmm. absolutely. And yep. Do, do you apply it, Ivy, in your design work at Google? Do, do you go out into nature and try to mimic some of the design that nature has already solved for us? Well, it's interesting. Well, two things. As a leader, I remember years ago reading, reading a book by Margaret Wheatley, which is Science and the New uh, Chaos and the New Science, or something where it profoundly changed. She was showing how nature is the best creator and how it innovates. You know, it innovates at every moment. And so I've always studied nature and look toward how it innovates with biomimicry. I mean, we are, um, you know, I will take the group out and they, we will sketch different leaves and look at the beauty of things. And we've had talks um, around biomimicry, but in our, I'm trying to think of a case where we may have used it directly. I'm not sure we used biomimicry, you know, looking at the way um, nature operates and put that into one of our products, but it has inspired us shape-wise, aesthetically, nice. um, and also the way it creates, the way it re- it births something new. Beautiful. I think the book is a form of biomimicry in the sense that, um, you know, 
if you think about rhizomes, you know, you you put something out and it starts to communicate with something else that starts to communicate with something else that starts to communicate with something else. And I feel like the book has had that kind of like ripples in the water, you know, and it's really been extraordinary to see how um, this content this around the way the arts change us and can help us and, and to grow, to learn, to heal is has really kind of caught on like wildfire. And I, and I think it's because we're so thirsty for something um, that it's just hitting that note. And, and that's been really fascinating to me. Like so a lot of things you put in the world don't resonate, don't have that kind of vibration. And, you know, Ivy and I created this book as a labor of love. It, we, we wrote it because we thought that it was something that needed to be shared and how you figure out how to share it is its own art but that it's taken on this vibration in the world and gets keeps getting shown back to us in different ways. Like even the conversation with you, you're showing us some things that we, you're, we're, we're mirroring each other and adding, right, perspective taking. And I think there's something about that that is in nature, right? That's in yeah. our nature, that's in the in physical nature too. Beautiful. Uh, personal question. I mean, I'm going to share something. I'm arguably the worst person as a drawer in the history of humanity. So if you if you ranked all people throughout all one, 117 billion people who have ever existed, I am last. I've been stuck in in you know five year old mode when it comes to my drawing ability. Can you explain to me why I've got zero artists? Not that I don't appreciate art. I love art. I'm passionate about art. I can see an art piece and it really moves me. I, I tell my wife, oh, let's try to see if we can afford it. Let's buy it. But yet I can't translate what I see into the world into actually being able to draw it. I'm stuck in the, you know, the the stick man figure era. That's 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 literally where I am. Can I improve? Well, I'll let Susan explain to you maybe why that is. But what we will, what I will say, and we say this in the book, is you do not have to be good at drawing to get the benefits um, of drawing. I mean, this, the person that does a beautiful drawing or a stick figure by just drawing and connecting your hand to your brain and expressing what's in your, what you want to express, even with stick figures, is where the health benefit uh, comes from. And in fact, the fact that you draw like a five-year-old, I don't know if you can see on my bookshelf, there's a great book called The Innocent Eye, and it takes children's drawings and, and uh, puts them opposite the page of like famous artists to show that children's drawings, many people come full circle. These famous artists look very much like children's drawings. So that do not judge yourself. <laughs> so maybe I am, maybe there's a great artist in me. If, if somehow the movement can become primitive art or something, I could become a best-selling artist. Who knows? Right. Well, you should, right, right. But you should do it. Our whole point is that doing the act of making that piece of art is what's good for you. No, no, I get you, it. You, you sell your books. I know, I know you're kidding, but you make your money from selling your books and do the drawing <laughs> to help keep your brain healthy. Susan? Well, I just have a question. Have you ever taken an art class? I have not. You, so okay, you, well, my okay. Let's stop there. Why don't you take an art class? <laughs> and you think, and you think that that I mean, it's not yeah. going to turn me into Da Vinci, but it could very quickly accelerate my ability to. to yeah. Track. Okay. Yeah. 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 I think so. No, the yeah. reason why that's not intuitive to me is because what you're saying is not intuitive to me because if you look at some an artist like Lionel Messi, he's a he's the greatest soccer player of all time. 
it's not clear that if Lionel Messi set up a seminar tomorrow and you ladies signed up uh, and he's going to be able to improve your soccer ability. I mean, maybe at, at the limit, you'll be you'll learn how to better kick a, a ball or how to take a free kick. But much of it to me seems as though it's innate. You either have it or not. Am I am I wrong in thinking that? You never know till you try. I think some right. people have a an innate ability more than others, but others I think get there because they are persistent. So practice, it, practice, practice. Think, you don't know till you try, which is right. what I think. Like we advise people, they're like all of these arts because people are like, oh, I want you know, um, because really we've shown in the book how. 20 minutes of making art a day, what it does to aid in your health and well-being. They're like, well, how do I start? And it's like, it could be picking up clay. It could be humming. It could be dancing in your house for 20 minutes. I mean, and no one even has to know because this isn't about proving or putting that art out there. I mean, that's what I think stops people a lot often from doing well, it. I did, to, to Susan's point, I in my undergraduate, I studied mathematics and computer science, which is obviously a very technical field. And I specifically took as an elective a ceramics course precisely to expand my horizon. And to Susan's point, by the end of the semester, we had to prepare an exhibition of our work. I still have those ceramic pieces and they're exactly. actually quite good. So I think I think your point is well taken. Yeah. Well, and you know, there's interest and there's mastery, right? And you may be interested in drawing, but you don't want to master it. Or you do. And if you want to master anything, I mean, Ivy's a, an intuitively amazing designer. She designed jewelry. It's in 10 museums all over the world, you know, but she's practiced, you know, she didn't sit down and right away create the piece that went in, which in Ivy's case, she might've, but, but more to the point, more to the point, you know, exercise, you know, I'm right now trying to build my core. Um, and it's really hard to build my core. Like I have to practice, I have to do it every day. And, um, and I have to do a little more every day. Right. And so, you know, you can sit down and express it, right? Um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I mean, as I say this all the time, I'm the poster child for I can't sing, can't dance, can't write, can't do anything well, but I do it all the time because it's so good for me. And I don't have a, des I'm a really good gardener, but I don't have a desire to be a great singer because if I did, I'd take a singing lesson, you know, um, but I, I, but I love to sing. And so I think we've been told that we have to be good at something. And that's just a, you know, you don't even have to be good at it unless you want to be, right? And oh, and then and then take a class. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. And Susan is a great gardener, and we learned that gardening is the slowest art form there is. <laughs> I love that. I love okay. that. I want you to stay on the line. We're going to do one or two questions for our subscribers, but folks, please go out, get this book, Your Brain on Art. It will help you live a better life. Thank you so much, ladies. That was a fantastic conversation. I appreciate it. Thank Cheers. you. Cheers.